During World War II, William Stidger, the poet, wrote some verse entitled, God cried himself to sleep last night. God cried himself to sleep last night when he saw 10,000 sons of his on cruel crosses slain. Will the hour ever come when God will cry himself to sleep because 20 million, 40 million, 60 million, 100 million sons and daughters of his by nuclear crosses slain. You know, only about 2% of the population are aware of the facts about nuclear warfare. They're available for everybody. Only about 2% know. How many are aware of the fact that the world's best-informed military leaders all think that nuclear war is inevitable? Inevitable. Of course, they mean limited nuclear war. And what's that? Dr. Herman Kahn of the Hudson Institute, a nuclear strategist, advisor to the Pentagon. He believes that a limited nuclear war could involve between 5 and 70 million deaths in this country and as many in USSR. Nuclear war. Inevitable. Say most leaders. Nuclear war has almost happened several times. The Pentagon has given the word on more than one occasion. The most well-known, of course, was the time of the Cuban crisis. Robert Kennedy, who was at the side of his brother during those trying hours, he spoke of it like this. He said, this was a confrontation between the two great atomic nations, the US and the USSR which brought the world to the abyss of nuclear destruction and the end of mankind. It would have left a world of cockroaches. Cockroaches are 400 times more resistant to nuclear radiation than we are. A world of cockroaches. Some of you may have heard John Chancellor just a couple of weeks ago. On the news he said this, he said, if the Russians march into Western Europe tomorrow, we will be at nuclear war before the end of the week. No wonder a certain newspaper advertisement went like this. To hell with politics. The question is, are you pro or anti-suicide? That is the question. People are too wrapped up in politics. They used to call religion the opium of the people. If religion's the opium of the people, politics is the heroine of the people. But the issue isn't politics, it's whether you are pro or anti-suicide. That's the issue. About one-fourth of the nations of earth are at war at the moment. And our own country has provided arms, military equipment, to 43 out of the 45 nations now involved in war. We can't hear a broadcast without hearing about Lebanon and Afghanistan and El Salvador and Nicaragua and so on. 
Did you know there were 70 nations just after World War II that received their independence? The British Empire is no longer an empire. Other European nations lost their empires. 70 new nations within a few years after the dropping of the first atomic bomb. But those nations haven't known peace. We don't always hear about them, but many of them are engaged in continual warfare. There have been a 100 insurrections, military conflicts since 1945. 100. Why is that significant? Because within 20 years, 100 nations will have nuclear armaments. Today, six major nations have them, but a dozen nations could put them together almost overnight. Within a decade, there'll be another 20. Within two decades, another 100. Soon, almost any Tom, Dick and Harry with enough money and use nuclear weapons. That's one reason, humanly speaking, why nuclear disaster is inevitable. We've given a title to this talk, not chaos, but Christ, and we have to stress the chaos before we appreciate the Christ. It's the wounded and the sick that appreciate health the most. It's those who've been blind that love the light the most. And if I dwell for a few minutes on the shadows, let me remind you that there cannot be shadows unless there is substance. There can never be shadows unless there's sunshine somewhere. Impossible. And some of you face the shadows in a very strange way tonight. There are people here just recovering from surgery, others anticipating it. There are people here worried to death about their children. May I say to you again, wherever there's shadows, there's sunshine. You can't have a shadow without the sun. We would never know evil but for the fact that we know good. So we talk about the chaos. Remember, we only do it to accentuate the Christ. We stress the pain. We want to talk about the great physician. The earth has no sorrow for which heaven has no remedy. It is a chaotic world. There have been less than five years of peace every century for millenniums. Less than five years every century for millenniums. It's not a new thing. But I have news for you. War is now an old thing and it is outdated. The war our ancestors knew has gone forever. What do I mean? Let me quote you Bertrand Russell. He wrote an article called Coexistence or No Existence. Coexistence or No Existence. The recent changes in the technique of war have produced a situation which is wholly unprecedented. War has existed ever since there were organized states, that is to say, for some 6,000 years. This ancient institution is now about to end. There are two ways in which the end may come about. The first is the extinction of the human race. The second is an agreement not to fight. I do not know which of these will be chosen. 
war with modern weapons cannot serve the purposes of any government in this world. No complete defense against an H-bomb attack is possible. If a great war broke out tomorrow, each side would be successful in attack and unsuccessful in defense. This means that in the first few days of such a war, all the great centers of population on each side would be obliterated. Those who survived this first disaster would perish slowly or quickly as a result of the fallout from radioactive cloud. Destruction of life from this cause would not be confined to the belligerent countries. The winds would gradually spread death throughout the world. Not even the Australians on the beach will be safe. It's global. We live in a global village. Once a war on one continent left most of the world unaffected, that day has changed. The Russians and the Americans live in the same bedroom. And if one end of the rowboat has holes in it, my friend, the other end's going to go down too. And all this talk about armaments, like two men surrounded by a sea of gasoline debating which is the safer because one has six matches and the other has 12. You see, mankind is not only sinful, he's, he's foolish, stupid. And even our weapons of defense, even our strategy for informing us of coming attack, it's so vulnerable, my friend. There have been 146 errors in atomic alerts in a recent 18 months period. 146 false alerts. One of the most prominent was caused by a tiny item that was worth 46 cents. Another one was caused by shadows cast by the moon, which radar operators hadn't thought about. And then there's the human element. You know, there are thousands and thousands employed by our government in nuclear defense, but every year, Hundreds and hundreds are weeded out because of mental breakdown. The strain is too great. Hundreds every year weeded out of our nuclear services because of mental breakdown. What if it should happen to a commander on a nuclear submarine? One nuclear submarine can wipe out every big city in any nation of the world. One. They have about 450 atomic warheads. They can wipe out 450 cities. Just one sub. And the U.S. government has admitted that U.S. nuclear submarine commanders do, under certain circumstances, have the right to make their own decision about sending out those missiles. We live in a very fragile world. It's teetering on the edge of chaos. In our day, except by a miracle of God, you and I will see limited nuclear warfare at least. That's the world. There was a young German playwright by the name of Wolfgang Borchert, only 26 when he died. He was a German actor, a poet, as well as a playwright. But because he wrote home from the war, his lack of enthusiasm 
about military engagement, they put him in a concentration camp. As he lay dying, he wrote this. If we do not learn to say no to war, then the last human creature with mangled entrails and infected lungs will wander around unanswered and lonely under the poisonous glowing sun and wavering constellations, lonely among the immense mass graves and the cold idols of the gigantic concrete-blocked devastated cities. The last human creature withered, mad, cursing, accusing. And his terrible accusation, why? That accusation will die away unheard on the steps, drift through the splitting ruins, seep away in the rubble of churches, lap against the great concrete shelters, fall into pools of blood, unheard, unanswered, the last animal scream of the last human animal. No wonder Robert Oppenheimer, who had most to do with the first atomic bomb, no wonder he said to Mr. Truman, Mr. President, I have blood on my hands. When he walked out the door, Truman swore. He said, I've got much more on mine. 130,000 people were wiped out at Hiroshima. 130,000. But for United States Secretary of War Stimson, the statistics would have been much, much worse. U.S. military leaders wanted to destroy a much larger Japanese city than Hiroshima. And Stimson protested, heavily protested. And so they chose what they thought was a middling sort of city, one of 340,000 and $130,000. Back in a more optimistic time, August 27, 1928, the nation signed the Kellogg-Briad Pact in Paris. The editor of the Christian Century wrote this, Today international war was banished from civilization. This peace treaty is absolutely watertight, bulletproof, not a single loophole in it. Man's not only bad, he's mad. A saner statement from the same magazine said this, In the outlawing of war, it is the plighted word of the nations that is our ultimate support. If that fails, civilization has come to something like a cosmic jumping-off place. That's where we are. A cosmic jumping-off place. You've all heard of Dostoevsky, one of the greatest Russian writers. The victim of oppressive government last century. His most prophetic book was a book called The Devils. And he has a character saying this. There'll be a generation or two of debauchery followed by a little sweet bloodletting. And then the turmoil will begin. How's that for a prophetic statement in the 19th century? A generation or two of debauchery, then a little sweet bloodletting. Yes, 15 million died in World War One. Over 50 million in World War Two, And one of the greatest of historians predicts that these two are part of a trilogy and the third one will involve at least 130 million deaths. A little sweet bloodletting. And then the turmoil will begin. 
Nietzsche said, when the church has become the mausoleums of God, then the world will writhe in convulsions. You know, Albert Camus said the Nazi party could never have taken over Germany but for the philosophy of Nietzsche, who declared that God was dead. That swept through Germany like a prairie fire. And the intellectuals of that country accepted the Nietzschean philosophy Man was only an animal. He had no heavenly father except matter and force and chance. Then the way was prepared for Adolf Hitler. If man is only a bag of seawater, rather than someone in the image of God, he can be forced into the image of society. Chaos always calls out for totalitarianism and tyranny, and we will see it in our day. Churches become the mausoleums of God. The world will rise in convulsions. It's interesting, you know, that Nietzsche went mad the year Hitler was born. Muggeridge pictured him as he leaned out the window of what Muggeridge called his loony bin. Nietzsche died in a lunatic asylum. He couldn't stand the reality if God was dead. But Muggeridge pictures him leaning out of his loony bin just after Hitler's born, waving goodbye to the sun. That giant orb's an emblem of our God. God hasn't left himself without witness. The greatest truths of the gospel do find their image in nature. The earth revolves on its axis and we enter into night. How wonderful the miracle of the dawning. The teaches that death is followed by life. That's why a Christian has no fear of death. He may have feelings about it, but no, no constant fear. The night is always followed by a morning. No shadows without the sunshine. We live in a world that worships violence. In a single week, any city TV channel shows approximately 1,000 acts of cruelty and death. Some years ago, at the time of one of the last of the great race riots of the decade, the most important film in the city where the riot took place was the film Devil's Angels. The advertising that went with it said this, violence is their god and they hunt in a pack like rabid dogs. Similarly, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, the film that was most prominent was Bonnie and Clyde, a film glorifying two perverted killers was being nominated for an Academy Award at the time when Martin Luther King was assassinated. This is a world that worships violence, sadism and masochism, cruelty to others, cruelty to oneself. Not just the unleashing of the animal within, 
guilty man knows that sin calls for expiation by blood and sacrifice. And if he won't accept God's provision, intuitively and inevitably, he seeks to make his own expiation. Nietzsche, we talked about before his death, said this, is there still an up and a down? Are we not wandering aimlessly through an infinite void? Does not an empty space breathe upon us? Has it not grown colder? Ionesco, well-known playwright, prominent in the theatre of the absurd, those existential productions to show the meaninglessness of existence and the constant battle to live. It's strange, you know, even the existentialist assumes that life is worth living. It was Santayana who said, the most necessary of assumptions is that life is worth living, but it's also the most impossible of conclusions. It's impossible if you disbelieve in God. You know, our word good comes from the word for God or vice versa. Evil, put a D in it and you've got devil. Good, take an O out and you have God. Man only knows good and evil because of his convictions about God, good, evil, God, Satan. In the theatre of the absurd, they, they try to stir up the courage to be in a meaningless universe. One of the most prominent writers, Ionesco, said this, I have no other images of the world except those of evanescence and brutality, vanity and rage, nothingness or hideousness. Everything I've seen, experienced, has only confirmed what I understood in my childhood. Vain and sordid fury, cries suddenly stifled by silence, shadows engulfed forever in the night. There's a book of scripture that's very relevant for our chaotic age. There's a book of chaos in the Bible, a book of war. I want you to look at the last verse. I hope you have your Bibles. Please turn to the last verse of the book of Judges. The chapters that are least read for family worship, apart from the chapters of the genealogies, are found in this book. This is where you read about the concubine being hacked into pieces and sent through the posts throughout the land of Israel. And so on. It's in this land without God, land of Israel without God, but you find the loss of all other things of value, the loss of tenderness and purity and truth and peace. It's all gone. It's a book of continual apostasy because they lost God, they lost peace, and they lost value, they lost truth, and they lost purity. Look at the last verse. In those days there was no king in Israel Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Come back a little bit and notice what it says in chapter 
18 and the first verse. In those days there was no king in Israel. Look at the next chapter, chapter 19, the first verse. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. You have a list of seven apostasies and then six captivities and a civil war, seven punishments and deliverances because of the long-suffering of God. The final chapters of the book portray a culture much like our own, a culture where God is gone, where violence and impurity rule. The book of Judges is all about chaos and it's a mirror of the 20th century. It's a book about idolatry, idolatry that began with one man, that spread to one family, then to one tribe, then to a nation, then to the world, where idolatry is at the root of all sin. If we're not looking at God, we look at ourselves and there our idolatry begins. When the great God goes, all the little gods come. Everybody worships. No one is self-sufficient. Typical of the terrible things recorded in this book, and I'll choose one that I can read in public, is the account in chapter 16 and verses 18 to 20. You know the story well, but it is a very apt picture of our civilization. It's the story of Samson. Let's notice what it says in verses 18 forward. Chapter 16. And when Delilah saw that he'd told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. She made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. She began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. He awoke out of his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times before and shake myself. But he wist not the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass and he did grind in the prison house. Albeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God and to rejoice. They said, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. They said, our God has delivered into our hands, our enemy, and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass when their hearts were merry, they said, call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, suffer me, that I may feel the pillars, Whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were upon the roof about three thousand men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the Lord and upon all the people that were therein. 
So the dead which he slew in his death more than they which he slew in his life. Has not our civilization put out its eyes by its idolatry of things material? Is not our civilization a mighty giant with a moral sense the size of a peanut? Technologically a giant? Morally a midget? Hip deep in garbage, shooting rockets at the moon? What stupidity to make first material advancements that will only precipitate death and destruction. Our civilization is a blind Samson, been unfaithful to its maker as he was. Its eyes have been put out. There's a great deal of difference between knowledge and wisdom. I love the story of your American writer, J. Fenimore Cooper, where some of the good young folk are advancing and they see in the distance smoke. And their guide says, hmm, pale face fire. And the young people say, how do you know that? The guide says, much smoke, little fire, pale face fire. And our world has much smoke, much knowledge. Every big city I go to, if there's time, I go to the main library. Look at it. Do you know, if you live a long, long time, about the most books you can read is about 10,000. That is, you're reading about three three a week for about 60 years. That's the most you can cope with, about 10,000. That's about 5% of what's published every year. And is the world better for it? Much smoke. Much smoke. Knowledge is not wisdom. Our world has put out its eyes. It's turned from the rock of ages. It's it's built upon sand. What a strange, sad world. The world is in bonds, the bonds of its passions and lusts and covetousness and its fear. You know, it's fear that will cause the next war, not greed anymore. Greed was the cause of wars up to the 20th century. Now it's usually fear. World War I started because of fear. Germany was so afraid, the Allies, who had been quite unfair in the settlement after World War I, were determined to keep them a backwoods country. They precipitated World War II. Fear. The nations are bound in the chains of fear and lust and idolatry, as much as Samson. And as Samson was going round and round and getting no place. That's the way it is with the 20th century. We go round and round to get no place. Ask Dad why he's working so hard. I want to put my kids through college. Why do you want to put them through college? I want them to go on to university. Why do you want them to go to university? So they'll have enough money to get a good job. Why do you want them to have a good job? So they'll have money to put their kids through college. Round and round and round, getting no place fast. It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world. We die trying to keep up with the Joneses. We all want to march the beat of the same mad drummer. The average man is loaded down with frustration. We need to hear another drummer. So Samson is a perfect picture of our civilization. 
And here he is bringing the whole house down. Isn't that what we're doing? The world's wisest men are on the verge of bringing the house down. How strange. The Russians hold 220 million Americans hostage tonight. We hold a similar figure of the Russians hostage tonight by our deterrence policy. The madness of it. The Russians say it's those American leaders the trouble. The people are all right. The Americans say the Russian people are right, but it's their leaders, see. So if their leaders do the wrong thing, they'll kill all the people. That's what we mean by deterrence. We're mad. We're about to bring the house down. Well, let's get away from the chaos. We've had enough of that. Let's come to the answer. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There's the problem. Every heart needs a king. Every home needs a king. Every nation needs the king of kings. In those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Blinded eyes. Blinded eyes. We need a king. And there is a king. You know what comes next after Judges? It's the book that prepares the way for the king after God's own heart. If you've got your Bible open, just look after Judges. You've got the beautiful story of Ruth. And do you remember how it closes? If you look at the end of Ruth, the last word is David. Do you know what David means? David means the beloved. The purpose of the book of Ruth, following the book where there was no king in Israel, only blinded giants bringing the house down. The next book paves the way for the king after God's own heart. Isn't that beautiful? You read the last verses of Ruth there. It gives the story of the birth of Ruth's child as she unites with Boaz in marriage. Then it tells us the descendants of that child, Obed, Jesse, and Jesse begat David. So immediately after God in his mercy has given us a book of the chaos where there's no king in Israel, then we get the contrast. When we turn the first page, we come to Boaz, that lord of the harvest, that mighty man of valor, whose name means in him strength, who spoke kindly to the alien and the outcast, who told his workmen to drop handfuls on purpose for her to gather up, this poverty-stricken refugee. She goes home to a mother-in-law who says to her, Shall I not seek rest for thee? Then we see her kneeling at the feet of Boaz, pleading for his talith. Today when a Jew marries, he throws his cloak, his talith, over the bride of his choice. And so Ruth, the lonely refugee from the land of Moab under the curse of their idolatry, kneels at the feet of the Lord of the harvest, Boaz, who'd been so kind to her, who'd noticed her, who'd invited her to lunch, who'd caused the handfuls on purpose to be dropped. He says, spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaiden, for thou art a near kinsman. He was a kinsman redeemer, related in order to redeem. Can I give you another picture of the king 
who can save us from chaos. And Judges finishes with there was no king in Israel. Moves into Ruth to give us the ancestors of David. Finishes with the name David, beloved. Then it moves into Samuel to picture David, the man after God's own heart. I want to just look at one little picture very quickly in the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 18. You remember David had a son Absalom who was beautiful but ugly. All the talent in the world but a selfish, egotistical heart. Wonderfully gifted. Stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Even won them from his own father whom they had adored. But he had a terrible heart, an ugly heart. Talent without heart is worse than no talent at all. But David loved him. And after the battle, it says in verse 29 of Second Samuel 18, the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? Look at verse 32. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? The one who'd rebelled against him. The one who'd caused him to leave his throne. The one who'd exiled him. And remember, It's a picture of what you and I have done to God. Absalom represents us. We were made glorious like Absalom, full of beauty. But we rebelled against our God. The whole story of David. David was forced out of the city, crossed over Kedron, went up Olivet. It all mirrored what happened a thousand years later when our Lord Jesus, rejected by Jerusalem, crossed the brook Kedron, the same route that David went, went up the same place, Mount of Olives, passing through Gethsemane. The whole story is here first. And in David's love for his rebel boy, we see the love of our king, the sinners. Notice what it climaxes with, verse 33. The king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I died for thee. O Absalom, my son, my son. What a love is that? Would God I had died for thee. And our David, our beloved, remember this man was born in Bethlehem too. This David. Never lost a battle when he was leading the armies of the Lord. Not one. Began his ministry by a conflict with a giant. Just as Jesus did in the wilderness of Judea. David was a prophet, a king and also a shepherd. Like our David, he's a prophet, he's a shepherd, the good shepherd, he's our king. So when you read this story, would God I had died for thee. My friends, there's the heart of Jesus towards you and me. We've all been rebels, we've all been Absaloms. The human heart is so chaotic unless the Lord held us. You know... There isn't one of us but experiences tremendous drives to destruction. There's not one of us that doesn't experience motivations to evil and that recurringly. Unless the Lord held us and kept us. We could so easily destroy ourselves or others, ourselves and others, any one of us. 
any one of us. Given the right circumstances, any one of us is capable of any evil. That's a hard thing to believe. It is true. Given the right circumstances, any one of us is capable of any evil. But he loves us. He loves us even when we've lapsed and fallen and exiled him from our hearts. He loves us. Would God I had died for thee. He has. He has. And so, my friends, that's the king and he's coming back again. The Israelite says, why don't you speak a word about bringing the king back? He's our flesh and blood. Bring the king back. As we preach the gospel and the mercy of God and the providence of God, it hastens the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the troubles of this old world will one day make the gospel go in a way it hasn't gone since Pentecost. When the world's in trouble, it'll cry out like a pierced pig that can only look up when it's on its back. The inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness when thy judgments are in the earth. When it's dark enough, the eternal stars shine out bright enough. When you're down in the bottom of a deep pit, then you see a glory in the heavens that you cannot see when you're out in the sunshine. And God is going to turn many to righteousness as many run to and fro with the news of the gospel in these last days. And men and women made half crazy with fear in a nuclear age, with the civilization trembling on the abyss, many, my friends, will drink in the words of life with joy as they learn about King Jesus who loved us and who gave himself for us. There's hope because there's Christ. Because there's Christ, there's hope. I want to leave with you a statement I have shared with others quite a lot recently because I love it so much myself. You can't reach 55 without going through some valleys. And unless the Good Shepherd's with us in those valleys, life doesn't seem worth living. But he is with us. Let me read this to you. It comes from an old Italian priest. 500 years ago, by the name Gaivani. He was riding to one of his flock and he sent a basket of fruit. The year 1513. And with the basket of fruit, which has long perished, he put in this beautiful message. Listen to it. And when you get the tape, write it out. Carry it with you till you know it off. The gloom of the world is but a shadow, he wrote. Behind it, Yet within our reach is joy. There is radiance and glory in the darkness. Could we but see? And to see, we have only to look. I beseech you to look. Life is so generous a giver that we, judging its gifts by their covering, cast them away as ugly or heavy or hard. Remove the covering and beneath it you will find a living splendor. Woven of love, by wisdom, with power. Welcome it, grasp it, and you touch the angel's hand that brings it to you. Everything we call a trial or a sorrow or a duty, believe me, that angel's hand is there. The gift is there and the wonder of an overshadowing presence. Life is so full of meaning and of purpose, so full of beauty beneath its covering. You'll find that earth but cloaks your heaven. Courage then to claim it. That's all. 
but courage you have and the knowledge that we are pilgrims together, wending through unknown country home. And so I greet you with the prayer that for you, now and forever, the day breaks and the shadows flee away.